Well, the gospel's exploding in the church at Rome. How do we know this? Because when we open up this letter in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is. It is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Why? Because in the gospel, a righteousness has been revealed and it's given to us by faith. In this church, in this melting pot, in the center of what was known really of the known world at this time, you had Jews and Gentiles who hated one another, who are now united in the gospel. Why? The gospel's exploding in the church at Rome. And so a few years ago, we looked at the first 11 chapters, which revealed to us the, the great doctrines what it means to be in Christ, to be saved by Christ, transformed by Christ, reconciled by Christ, loved by Christ, given a new relationship with Christ. This was all the doctrine. And then Paul is, is so pumped up at the end of Romans 11. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He says only God could plan this. This was his doxology. But then in Romans chapters 12 to 16, Paul tells us what it looks like then to put that doctrine into to practice in a dedicated life. So we saw a few weeks ago what it looks like to have a new mind, to be renewed in the spirit of our mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Then last week we looked at what it looks like for that mind to take shape and in who we are. We're part of the body of Christ. We've all got different gifts. We've all got different skills. We've all got a unique role in the body. We are members of one another. But now, Paul's going to tell you how to live. He's going to get really, really specific. In verses 9 to 13, he's going to tell you and me, if you're a Christian, how we have to live. And I googled this week how we should be living in 2023. And apparently at this time of year, by tomorrow, you've either tried and failed with some healthy new craze. This article was entitled 10 Health Trends That Should Go Viral in 2023. Here are just a few of them. First one, you need to have good gut health. If you want the outside of your body to go well, this article says start with the inside. You need good gut health. The second thing they offered was set healthy boundaries in your relationships. The writer says, if you're feeling taken advantage of, disrespected, then in 2023, you need to establish healthy boundaries in your relationships. Dr. Childs says this. We need to set boundaries to protect our mental health first and foremost. When we set boundaries, we teach people how to treat us. It's fascinating as I read down through that article, the 10 things talked about everything that focuses on you. You at the center of your own world. But when we read these verses from the Apostle Paul written 2,000 years ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's not going to tell you about how you should treat yourself. He's going to tell you about how you should treat other people. Because as we look at the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, really from Genesis to Revelation, specifically in the New Testament, most of the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to fuel you and going to empower you to serve other people. So let's look then at what it looks like 
to have a healthy spiritual body. Look at the first little thing Paul draws out for us, and we'll spend most of our time on that this morning. We need to be loving like Jesus Christ. So let's drop down into the text. Romans 12 verse 9, we need to love like Christ. Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Let's pick these little staccato-like verses apart. Look at verse 9, let love be genuine. The word Paul uses is agape love. There's four different types of love in the New Testament, all rendered with different Greek words. But, but the word he chooses here is agape, sacrificial love. It's love of volition. It's love that comes not based on feelings, but, but as an act of the will. Paul is saying if the Jew and the Gentile are going to form this healthy, living, vibrant body of Christ that's going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, you need to be fueled by agape love. But this love, this agape love, this sacrificial love, look what it's marked by. Let this love be genuine. This love was to be without hypocrisy. One historian said it was custom for Greek and Roman actors to speak in large mass with mechanical devices for augmenting the force of the voice. Hence the word became used metaphorically of a hypocrite. Paul knew in that first century those who would be actors, those who would wear a mask, who would portray one thing but they really meant another. And that can happen in the church. You can have people that can say one thing in the hallway or in the foyer or in this main body or somewhere else in the church, and yet you go home and you say something totally different. The Bible would say that's hypocrisy. Paul says it's got to be genuine. It's got to be sincere. Some of you Latin scholars will know that the English word sincere comes from the Latin word sincerus means to be without wax. Again, in the first century, there used to be some dodgy dealers who in the marketplaces would have got a clay pot and might have been broken. And so in order to make a few quid, they would have put that clay pot back together with wax. And the undiscerning buyer would have come along and saw them, oh, it looks good, I'll take that. But if they held it up against the sunlight, they would see that it was actually cracked. It was a fake. It was a phony. And the person selling was engaged in fraudulent activity. That particular seal was not genuine. It wasn't sincere. It was a waxy type of love. Paul says, your love must be genuine. It must be without wax. Paul and Peter wrote about this love to other leaders in different churches. To young Timothy, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart. Peter writes to the scattered believers under persecution in 1 Peter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Let me ask you, is your love sincere, genuine, without wax, without hypocrisy, without a mask, without fraud? Because remember Judas, if anybody looked like the genuine article, it was him, wasn't it? Three years as Jesus' treasurer. Lived beside Jesus. 
traveled with Jesus, heard his teachings up close, saw the healings, saw many different forms of miracles. But you see, Judas' love was not genuine. Judas loved Jesus, not for who Jesus was, but for what he could get from Jesus. And as I thought about what genuine love and what fake love is, we can do that in all of our relationships in the church. We might sort of fake love for someone based on what we can get out of them. We might love the church not because of what it is, the bride of Christ, but for what we can get from the church. We might love a family member, not for who they are, but for what they can give. We might love a friend, not for who they are, but for what they can give us. That sort of love, the Bible says, is fake love. It's Judas-like love. And as we're honest as humans, the one thing we possibly hate more than anything else is hypocrisy. For a politician to say one thing and for them to do another. For a church leader to say one thing and for them to do another. For a business leader to say one thing and for them to do another. And some of you have experienced hypocrisy at the deepest level. Someone who has said that they will love you till the end, only to find out through a text or a phone call or an email or a letter for somebody else, when you find the real truth that they were a hypocrite church, let our love be without wax, genuine, sincere. So we've heard what it's not to be, but what should it be? Well, genuine love looks like Jesus. It looks like Jesus, like a beautiful diamond. You lift up his life and it shines from a myriad of perspectives. We look at 1 Corinthians 13 and we can simply insert the name of Jesus. His love was patient. Jesus was kind. Jesus was not envious. Jesus did not boast. Jesus was not arrogant or rude. Jesus did not insist on having his own way. Jesus was not irritable or resentful. Jesus did not rejoice in wrongdoing. Jesus rejoiced with the truth. Jesus bore all things. Jesus believed all things. Jesus hoped all things. Jesus endured all things. And the love of Jesus never ends. You want to know what genuine, sincere love looks like? Look at the person of Christ. We see this all over the New Testament, him speaking and him living. In John 13, verse 34, he's with his disciples in the upper room. It's just hours before he will go to the cross and demonstrate his love. And he says to them, a new commandment, John 13, 34, I give to you that you must love one another. And the disciples go, how can I love one another? Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. He would go on, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus was saying, I'm about to show you what agape, sacrificial love looks like. And so if you're wondering what it looks like to love one another in the church, always think back to the cross. This is the ultimate demonstration of sincere love. But how else can we pursue this genuine love, the love of Christ. Well, look at what Paul says next. In the verse, verse 9, he says, abhor, detest that which is evil. 
Again, the phrase is in the present tense. Keep on detesting. Keep on hearing that which is evil. I don't know why I thought about it. Some of you say I don't know why you think about many things, Johnny, but that's another time. But I thought about uh, the children in my house when I read this. And I'll not tell you who it was, but she was a girl. And uh, I normally tell you about a young boy, but let me tell you about a young girl. And I remember when we were trying to get this young girl to move from milk to solid food. She has a very strong personality. She's a lovely personality. And when we put the solid food up to her mouth, the lips were pursed. There was no way that mushy new food was going to get in. But we kept trying. And you know, after a while, the great protestations ceased. And this little girl, this lovely little girl, started to receive the food. Why? Because from having, in a sense, a hatred for it, she loved the milk, she didn't like this food, she started to develop a taste for it. And you know, in our lives, we can be a bit like that when it comes to sin. Sinful temptations are put before us, and, oh, and then suddenly, over time, you start to develop a bit of a taste for it. And that which used to be abhorrent to you, you now start to justify and you start to take a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And before you realize, you start to find yourself not abhorring things that are evil, but devouring things that are evil. Paul is saying sinful activities in our lives should be abhorrent. And yet, if you're anything like me, I feel like we are living in a culture which is trying to tell us most about anything is not really evil. One writer says, our security against sin lies in our being shocked by it. Our security against sin lies in our being shocked by it. I remember about 15 years ago, sitting in a seminary class in a visiting lecture committee, he said this to the class. He says, if you lose your fear of God, you could be up to your armpits in anything. If you lose your fear of God, if you lose perspective in the holiness of God, we won't just be abhorring that which is evil, but possibly devouring it. So much of the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, flee these things. 2 Timothy 2:22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. So we're to abhor that which is evil, but but look what else that Paul says. He says, hold fast to that which is good. Cling to, cement yourself to, glue yourselves to that which is good. I wonder, is that true of you? What are you glued to? It's what the word was used for in the original context, to, to be glued to something, to be cemented to something. What are you glued to? Your bank account? Your family? Your career? Things on the internet that nobody else sees? You see, those are the sort of things that unless the Holy Spirit is at 
work in our lives and we're submitting ourselves to his will and his way, these are the sort of things that we cement ourselves to. We begin to glue ourselves to. The truth is we cling to what we love. We cling to what we really worship. And Paul says, well, this is not the way it's meant to be, this type of clinging. It's to be to that which is good. It's to be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say, what else does this love look like in the body of Christ? Well, it should become manifest. Look at verse 10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. I thought about the Northern Ireland Christian when I read this. We're quite reserved. We hide ourselves, protect ourselves a good bit behind sarcasm, and we don't do outward shows of affection. That's what certain other countries do, but that's not us. Well, listen to what the Bible says. In the church, love one another with brotherly affection. Originally in the text, it says, be very affectionate. Be very tender. You see, the dividing wall of hostility that stood between the Jew and the Gentile had now been smashed through the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying now, across the rubble, across the divide, reach out to one another with brotherly affection. Members of the spiritual family should do all in their power to be devoted to each other. It doesn't mean that everyone's your friend but it means that everyone should be loved. How else does this look in the church? Well, he continues verse 10. He says, outdo one another. Be the first to esteem others. Be the first to lead the way. Be eager to show honor to others. Be the first person to make much of someone else. It takes humility produced by the gospel of Jesus Christ to see the work and to see the worth of someone else and to praise them for evidences of God's grace in their lives. But if you are wrapped up in yourself, you will never see the evidences of God's grace in other people's lives. You'll be so obsessed with yourself, intoxicated with yourself, that you don't see what God is doing with other people. Paul is saying, be the first to affirm that which God is doing in other people's lives. We are to show honor to everyone. Romans 13, verse 7, honor to whom honor is owed. Marriage is to be honored. Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor. Elders in the church are to be honored. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Christ is to be honored. John 5, verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And the government is to be honored. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let me ask you again. How are you doing at honoring other people? Sometimes if you're like me, my default might be, but they never asked about me. Paul is saying, don't be so obsessed about yourself. Honor other people. When was the last time you went up to somebody and you looked them in the eye and said, just love to see what God is doing in your life. Encourages me. 
to see what you did over there, to see what you did over there, to see just the fact you opened the door all morning. Just, I just want to honor you and thank you for your service. Oh, but that's not us. We're Northern Ireland Christians. No, 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 no. It's what the Bible says. Be eager. It was used in a sense like a, a hunter pursuing their prey. That's the intensity of the word. Be that eager to show honor to other people. But we don't just love like Christ. We secondly serve like Christ. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. One writer says, this is the attitude which seeks to get by by as little work and inconvenience as possible. It's a sort of attitude which shrinks from dust and heat and resents the necessity for an exertion as a burden and an imposition. Paul says, stop being a lazy Christian. Stop being a lazy Christian. The, the Bible says when you become a Christian, you are wonderfully justified. But as we talked about a, a couple of weeks ago, between that time when we are justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, when we receive that alien righteousness that comes to us by faith, until we get to heaven in that glorified state, you and I, were in the midst of a warfare. Romans 7 talks about it, and Romans 8 talks about it, that your flesh, that remaining sinfulness that is in you and me, and the Holy Spirit of God that is within you if you're a Christian, there's a warfare going on. And Paul says, resist that remaining fleshiness. Rather, verse 11, look at what it says, be fervent in, in spirit. Again, in the original text, be boiling in your spirit, be enthusiastic in your spirit, be fiery hot in your spirit. It's the antithesis of being lukewarm. And this happened to men and women in the New Testament. Peter, who said to Jesus, I'll never let you down. And yet in front of a wee fire with a wee little girl, he says, I don't know Jesus. And yet days after it, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he's been set on fire. And the same people who executed the Lord, he goes and tells them, this Jesus whom you've crucified, he's the Lord and Christ. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. Paul the Apostle used to be Saul on his way to Damascus who wanted to arrest Christians. Suddenly he's arrested by the Holy Spirit and his life's turned upside down. What happened? The Holy Spirit happened. Oh, that God the Holy Spirit would take you and me and set us on fire. We need him. By nature, we will be lazy. By nature, we'll be slothful. By nature, but by the Holy Spirit's power, how he'll move us, shake us. You see, sin wants to twist us inward. The Holy Spirit wants to turn us outward. And so Paul distills this very simply for me and for you in the three little words at the end of verse 11. Serve the Lord. That's the baseline for Christian living. There's lots of wonderful things that happen to us in the spiritual life, but here's a, a brief little manifesto for us. Quite simply, your life should be one of service to 
the Lord. And as we look at his life, can't you see his life of service? In his incarnation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past, delightfully loving one another, submitting to one another, rejoicing in one another. And now the Son leaves the glory of heaven, conceived under the power of the, of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, growing up in a, in a family, growing up in this little, little village, no bigger than a football field, up on a hill in Nazareth, obscure. And then choosing 12 random blokes to come and to, to follow him. Do you see his life of service? What humility, what grace. He is our model. But sometimes life is, is just so challenging and so difficult. So Paul helps us here with the third little movement. He says we need to be enduring like Christ. Look at verse 12. He realizes that some circumstances are, are very, very challenging for Christians. And so in the midst of their internal pressures and in the midst of the external pressures in Rome, Paul says, verse 12, rejoice in hope. He says, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Believers are to be filled with hope, not because of the circumstances that you are in, but because what will God will do next. It's very difficult for us if you're in very challenging circumstances to rejoice in the circumstances. That's not what Paul is calling us to do, but to rejoice in what God is ultimately going to do. So Paul says rejoice in Hope, but in who do we find this hope? We find it in Jesus. Again, as the writer of the Hebrews writes to the Hebrew believers, Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus. Who was he? Well, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Well, what did he do? Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Where did he, what did he do there? Despising its shame. And he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, what must we do then? Consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted so that when you come to church this morning and you hear all these exhortations about what you are to be, you look to Jesus for your source of inspiration and hope. Colossians 1 verse 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So what is hope? Hope is holding on, clinging to the promises of what God has said to us in his word. What is he gonna do with the Christian ultimately? We ask God the Holy Spirit to then fill us with his power and through prayer, ask God to unleash that hope within us. Rejoice in hope, but life is hard. And so Paul says, be patient in tribulation. Another way to say it would be to stand firm when the storm is swirling all around you. See, it's Spurgeon said, rejoice in hope and be patient in affliction. 
are powerful antidotes against poison, but they must be taken with prayer. Joy and patience are curative essences, but they must be dropped into a glass full of supplication, and then they will be wonderfully efficient. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. But look at how these things all come together. Look at the last little nugget of verse 12. Be constant in prayer. Individual prayer and corporate prayer is the oxygen of hope for the Christian. Because if we need to rejoice in hope, prayer is clinging on to the promises of God that God will either change me or you or that he will also change the circumstances. Prayer gets us focused on that which is to come. If you're anything like me, if I'm not being constant in prayer, what I'm doing is I'm murmuring on, I'm meditating on, I'm dwelling on the now rather than the next. Prayer gets us focused on the fact that God's not finished yet. And that what he starts in us, he's going to complete. And when you look at all the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11 and 12, what were they looking forward to? That which was to come. Some of them who went about in sheepskins. Some of them who were burned at the stake. They were looking forward to the city whose architect and builder was God. Some of them didn't receive the reward on this life, but they were looking for that which is to come. Prayer keeps you and me living in the hope that's going to come in the future. Constant in prayer. Just like the Lord. Jesus modeled this for us with his desire to be alone in his father's house as a boy being alone with his father all night before choosing the 12. He modeled this teaching his disciples to pray in the great Lord's Prayer. In Gethsemane, praying in his hour of great tribulation, and even on the cross, he was looking forward. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And then he gives this wonderful exhortation to you and to me in Luke 18 verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. Your difficult circumstances today will cause you to lose heart. Prayer will cause you to hope, and it's a fight. The Holy Spirit will give us the power for the fight. But there's a last little nugget here before we come to a close this morning. We need to be giving like Christ. We need to be giving like Christ. Look at how Paul finishes this little pericope. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13, and seek to show hospitality. Some of these believers would have left circumstances because they've been thrown out of their family. And being thrown out of their family may have then meant logically being thrown out of their family business. And so some of them would have been destitute if it wasn't for the local church, the local believers. He says, he says welcome them in. Use your time and your talent and your treasures for other people. 
Hospitality was a key feature of the earthly ministry of Jesus, both in being dependent upon it himself and yet his practice and commendation of it as a model of divine generosity. If you think about the word hospitality, it comes from the word hospital. People think, well, I can't be hospitable because I'm not a very good cook. But actually, the food is probably one of the lowest things in rank when you have someone into your home. It's the atmosphere. It's the ethos. It's the grace of bringing them into your intimate environment and opening up your life to them. Don't worry about the food. It's showing Christian love. It's showing Christian grace. Rosario Butterfield, who was wonderfully converted to Christ. She said this book in her uh, little theme, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She says this, radical ordinary hospitality shows this skeptical post-Christian world what authentic Christianity looks like. Those who live out radically, they have ordinary homes with ordinary hospitality but they use God's gift to further the kingdom. They open their doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. And she takes the Lord Jesus as her model. She said, Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Isn't that good? Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. Jesus lived in the world, but he didn't live like the world. Jesus, the friend of sinners. Is your home a castle for you? Or is it a hospital for other Christians and non-Christians? Jesus shows what it looks like to open up his life as a hospital. Where he lived was a place where the sinners were welcome and grace was shown. Paul's bringing, in a sense, a close to this body imagery here. And I think the challenge for us here is, what role are we playing? The body must move. And your role in the body. The temptation living in our flesh is to spread gangrene around the body. Criticism and gossip spreads like gangrene around a spiritual body. But if we're on fire for Jesus Christ, regardless of how we've been hurt and wounded, by the Holy Spirit's power, we won't spread gangrene. We will spread grace.